And if you're not already there, go ahead and turn with me to the book of John. This week, we're, we're kind of in a part two. We started looking at these greater works that Jesus was going to do. And if you recall, a few weeks ago, we said that Jesus just continues to double down. He sees probably angry faces, <laughs> poor body language. And instead of backing off and softening the blow, he just keeps doubling down in his relationship with the Father because it's a unique relationship. It's a special relationship. In fact, this relationship explains why Jesus is able to heal the man that he healed on the Sabbath. He's trying to explain to them the reason behind this. You remember that infirm man, that crippled man of 38 years got healed by Jesus at the pool of Bethesda. This was John's third hand-selected sign. Hand-selected for what? To convince his readers, you and I, his modern-day readers, that you can trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life. That that's all you need to do to live forever with God in heaven. That Jesus paid it all. John is recording these miracles to show us this. Now, the problem with this miracle, and this is what we keep bringing out, and this is the problem and why the long monologue that Jesus gets into is because he healed a man on a Sabbath. And that was against the interpretation of the religious leaders of that day. You, you could not work on the Sabbath. And Jesus has already told him, well, God can work on the Sabbath. And oh, by the way, I'm God. <laughs> so I, I can pull that off too. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. When you get into John five, I've said this a million times, but I, I want to keep bringing it to your mind because I want it to be one of your favorite passages in the Bible. You know, pastors always lie when they get invited to Bible conferences. They, whatever they get uh, taught, told to teach on, they're like, this is my favorite passage in the Bible. And then next year, uh, this is my favorite passage in the Bible. So I know we, we all have favorite passages, but I want John 5 to be one of yours because it is a treasure trove of truth about the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to know Jesus Christ, if you want to be occupied with Jesus Christ, this is a great place to go because you know, as you sit there today, most of you know this, that Jesus Christ is awesome. John 5 is going to say, you know what? He's more awesome than you thought he was. And that's what I love about the Bible. And that's what I love exploring more about the Bible and about Jesus Christ, because he is more awesome than you ever knew or thought he was. And guess what you're going to find out when you get to heaven? He's even more awesome than you thought he was down here. After a lifetime of study, you're going to get to heaven. You're going to be blown away. I guarantee. I, money back guarantee. Right? I mean, seriously. This is how incredible Jesus Christ is. And so as we consider this morning, we're going to continue to consider the two greater works mentioned in verse 20. Remember, the father was going to show the son greater works than these. We've been looking at two of them. We'll continue looking at them this morning. He can raise the dead and he will judge the world. And remember, those were events or activities that Jews thought were only reserved for Yahweh. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm doing those things. And so again, this is, sets the tension for the scene. So let's go to verse 26 and verse 27. Let's read those together. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Now, and before we jump into verse 26, we got to go back to verse 25 because it, it really uh, sets the stage or gives us the reason for what he says in verse 26. Let's read verse 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So why is the word of the Son of God able to bring people to life? Verse 26 is going to tell us. In fact, you see that word in verse 26, that, that great Bible study word for, right? It's going to give us the reason that he says this. And what we're going to find out, which is just mind-boggling, and, and I don't want to just read over it because it's Jesus and we're not, you know, we're not as impressed with Jesus. We should be impressed with what he's saying here because he's saying the Father has life in himself. Every Jew understood that because in the beginning, what did God do? He created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God breathed life into a lifeless body when he created Adam, right? So in himself, he's got life. But Jesus is going to drop an absolute large microphone here. This is a mic drop moment again. He's going to say, just as the father has life in himself, so does the son. And this is why when he speaks, verse 25, people get out of the grave. People run out of the grave. It's it, when we get to John 11, you're going to see, he says, Lazarus, come out, come forth. And I love what commentators say, because it makes me think more highly of Jesus. 
Thankfully, he said Lazarus did not just come out because all of the graves would have emptied. That's how powerful Jesus Christ is. And so we see his word is the reason, uh, the, the reason he can, he can raise people through his word is because he has life in himself. But we're going to see some uniqueness in the way he says it here. And we'll kind of get into that as we go. So the father right now, present tense, always possesses life, not from an outside source, not from a conglomeration of outside sources to put together, but in himself. You know, you sit this morning on a chair, a plastic chair. And do you know that not one person on earth can make that chair all by themselves? They have to depend on other people for parts of that chair. There's oil refineries involved in that chair. There's chemical plants involved in the chair that you're sitting on, right? There's probably, I mean, who knows what else? Engineering that only certain people can do. There's manufacturers. There's, there's people that put the screws in. I mean, there's so many people involved sitting uh, that on the chair that you're sitting in. God's not like that. God's not taking elements here and elements there and trying to mix them together in the lab. And he's like, oh, I, f- I finally figured out how to produce life. No, he's life himself. He possesses life. He always possesses life. He's self-sustaining. He doesn't need anything else to live. And he's self-existent. And because he's self-existing, he's the source of all life, both physically and spiritually. And Jesus has been bouncing back and forth with this whole concept of spiritual life and physical life in terms of resurrection. And so we kind of have seen that, verse 24, largely focusing on spiritual life for somebody who was dead spiritually to God, made alive when they trusted in Christ alone. But here's the mind-blowing thing. So the Jews would say, oh yeah, God, Yahweh, has life in himself. But what Jesus says next is mind-blowing. He says, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And here's the mic drop moment. By the way, the Son of God also possesses life in himself due to his divine nature. And so this would have been mind-blowing. This would have upset the Jewish people because, again, Jesus is saying things that although he's, he's kind of subservient to the Father, he's, he brings that out again. He's going to bring that out again when we get to verse 30. He's placing himself on equality. He's placing himself on equal ground with the Father. And the reason he does this is because he has a unique relationship to the Father. He is a unique God man. There's nobody else that's ever existed him, uh, like him on planet earth in this incarnation, just such a unique setup that God, the father put together for the Messiah, not only to come and be God, but to be human and be able to pay the exact penalty that our sins require. Just an amazing man as we think about him, but he's going to describe something unique here. And this is what we're going to see as we go forward, because there's two things that the father says that he has given the son. Okay, and we, you can kind of pick those out as we follow along in verses 26 and 27. But what has the first thing he gave him? Well, he's granted the son to have life in himself. This word granted means to give of your own accord. It means to give of your goodwill. It's just our typical word given. Okay, it's, it's translated granted here, but it's our word. He's, he's given the son. Okay, he's given the son something, and that something is to have life in and of himself. And so because... Jesus did not do anything without the Father's resources. Even this ability to grant life to others must come from a divine life source. There's only, there's only one being on earth that has life within himself. It's the Godhead. It's the triune Godhead. I think this statement could be made about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But, but that's it. It's a, it's a very small club, so to speak, that could be described as having life in himself. And so it's got to come from a divine life source. And so what that tells us is this, both spiritually and physically, Jesus has the right, the power, and the authority in himself to, to give life and to bring somebody back from the dead. This is why John 14, 6, when Jesus claims that I am the way, the truth, and what else is he? He's the life. This is why 1 John 1, if you kind of read through the chapter, John kind of uses some weird language. It's not the way we normally talk. But he says, we have handled the word of life. That life. And he he views Jesus through the lens of he is life. And that's exactly what this passage is teaching. In fact, this is what his incarnation was able to show, is that he indeed was life. And one of the things that I think John, uh, Jesus wants his audience to know is that God the Father is completely on board with Jesus doing this very thing. 
giving spiritual life to spiritually dead people who trust in him and raising people who have physically died back to physical life, which we're going to see in the life of Lazarus. We saw it in two other examples in his ministry that he had the power to do that. And as we're going to see, there's a uniqueness here. And that's what we want to talk about is that the father granted the son this, uh, this ability to utilize this aspect of his divine essence in his ministry to other people. Remember what started this section was verse 19. Let's read that really quick. At least that first section, Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself. Look what closes this section. Verse 30. I can do nothing. I can of myself do nothing. Jesus is reminded that everything that he does, everything that he's able to exercise, he is doing by utilizing the father's resources. We're seeing that here as well. The father has granted the son the ability to use life in his ministry, bringing people to spiritual life and then bringing people back to physical life. And we'll kind of explore that a little bit further when we get down to verse 30. The second thing that the father has given the son is the ability or the authority to execute Judgment. This word, uh, word given is the same word used earlier. Um, but here's the point. Jesus, not the religious leaders, uh, has been given the authority to judge, to, to form an opinion, to evaluate what's actually going on in this setting. See, they thought they were God's judge on earth. They thought they were the ones that had the accurate evaluation of Jesus healing on the Sabbath and that it was wrong and that he was a sinner and that he was a blasphemer. And what they didn't realize is that no, God, the father has actually given the son, the authority to judge. So now again, these are the greater works that he's talking about. In fact, the role given to the son by the father is that he's the representative of judgment. And so you think about these religious leaders and you want to say, how dare you think that you can pass judgment on God's representative? And that's exactly what they were doing. And and this is exactly what they did in their entire life in ministry. They took the posture of the superior in the room. You've met people like that, right? I I actually had somebody tell me one time, it's funny. Every room I walk into, I'm the smartest person in the room. I've never, I've never been in a room where I wasn't the smartest person in the room. Now I appreciate that. At least they told me that. I've met a lot of other people that have thought that, but they've never told me that. This person actually declared it. But in this case, that's exactly what the Jewish religious leaders thought. Every room I walk into, I'm the fruit inspector. I'm the judge. I'm the evaluator. And so I'm not worried about me because I'm on par. But I am worried about all y'all. I'm going to be kind of poking. And you know, this person over here, they're, they're not wearing the right clothes. They got this on. They, they got. And that's exactly what these religious leaders were doing. And Jesus says, by the way, God the Father has given me the authority to judge. And I'm telling you that what I did on the Sabbath was right. And this is what they're having problem with, obviously. Now, as you go to the end of verse 27, you'll notice this word because. And what that's going to do is it's going to give us the reason, right? It's going to tell us the reason why God, it's because he's, does it say it's because he's the son or does it say because he's the son of man? That's going to be significant. He's, he's saying a lot more here than what we typically think. And like we said before, and we'll say it a bunch during the book of John, when Jesus uses the title son of man, he's not talking about his humanity. I mean, he could be, but more than likely he's referencing an old Testament passage that's identifying him as the Messiah. That would have been a trigger word. You know, it's like if you've ever been just walking on the street and you hear somebody say a word and it triggers a song, right? I remember walking, you know, walking on the street. I'm just kind of, and immediately I'm like, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. You know, it's like, it's just in my mind, right? It just, it just triggered me to, to go to this song. I hadn't thought about Aretha Franklin in years. And um, that song came immediately to mind. When Jesus says, son of man, it would have triggered the Jewish religious leaders to a path. Oh, what? And it would have triggered them to a passage. We'll look at that here in a second. But here's the reason given. It's because... He's the son of man. It's a direct connection to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Again, so we want to turn, turn with me real quick. Hold your finger in John. We'll come right back. Don't worry. I'm going to probably only make you use two fingers this morning at a time. So Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. And those of you that are, that love eschatology, you already know this passage, right? This is 
This is an exciting passage when we're talking about end times. But look at, look at what Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says. I was watching in the night, Daniel speaking, in the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now that should also sound familiar because in Jesus' trials, he says, I'm the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And that's when they're like, we're going to kill this guy. And I think some of them probably want to do it with their bare hands at that point. Because this is who he's claiming to be right here. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days. That's God the Father. And they brought him near before him. And then to him, the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, what's he talking about there? He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter two, that all the kingdoms of the world would be crushed by the kingdom that God is going to send through the Messiah. And here he's identifying this as the son of man will be given this. And so go back now to John. Well, you can hold your finger there, but flip back to John uh, 5, 27. Notice why has God given authority to him to judge? Because he's Daniel 7, 13. He's the the son of man. These are the connections that Jesus is making for his audience. And notice according to Daniel 7, 13 and 14 that God the Father gave him multiple things. Dominion, glory, and a kingdom. In other words, what? The son is gonna rule, he's gonna judge, and he's gonna do so forever. You see, Jesus is just telling them what they already know, but he's connecting dots that they've never had connected for him before. Now they're not going to like what he says, but we're going to see that Jesus and this concept of the son of man being given the authority to exercise judgment. Jesus is simply saying, guys, I'm the one who Daniel wrote about. This is what he's saying right here. This is why the father has given me authority. Also consider that in Daniel 12, one and two, if you want to just flip over there, Jesus is also going to make another connection for these guys at this point. But what we're going to read about in Daniel 12, 1 through 2, is this this deliverance of the people of Israel from a time of tribulation, and then a future resurrection of both saved and unsaved people at that time, which is going to lead us right into verse 28. And so it seems like as as Jesus is talking here, he's kind of working his way through the book of Daniel in terms of the claims that he's making, in in terms of the dots that he's connecting for his readers. In fact, look at Daniel 12, 1 through 2. And at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, talking about Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. What is that time of trouble that they've never seen? It's the future tribulation. It's the future seven year tribulation period on earth that Daniel had predicted back in chapter nine. Verse two, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so we see this resurrection of both saved and unsaved people. And Jesus is basically saying, this is me. I'm basically walking you through Daniel to show you that this is me. Basically, he's connecting this passage to legitimize what he's doing and what he's saying and the fact that he's got the ability to judge I love it because what's he using to convince them? Allegedly, the thing they would be convinced by, which is the word of God in the Old Testament. And that's what he's trying to convince them. We'll see it doesn't go well. In fact, I I don't know what happened between verse 27 and verse 28, but it's like Jesus saw something in their faces because I think they're starting to make the connection. I don't think they like what he's saying, but I think they understand what he's trying to say. I don't think they like it. And so he's going to say to them, basically, don't be offended. Take it easy. Verse 28, he says it this way. Do not marvel at this. What's this? Well, what he's just been saying, that he's been given the authority to do, to give life and also judge. He says, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now this word marvel means to wonder or to be struck with astonishment or admiration to, to be shocked is, is kind of maybe a way you could say this. Now it's ironic because if you recall, you were here maybe a couple weeks ago, verse 20 
What was the reason given that God said he would show the son greater works? Well, go back to verse 20 at the end. He says, the father loves the son, shows him all the things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Same word. So it's interesting because there he said he wanted them to marvel. And now Jesus is saying, don't marvel. And it seems like it's a little bit of a contradiction. But, you know, we use, we use words this way, right? We use the word shock. Some people can be shocked by something, and it can be positive, right? If you've ever watched a video, you know, I'd, uh, sometimes you'll, you'll see little YouTube videos. Or it'll be like a commercial, you know, while you're watching something. And you'll see, like, somebody, a, a mom or a dad who's been in the Air Force or been in the military, the, the Army, the Marines. They've been deployed. And then they bring them back to their child's school, and they surprise them. And it's the, no one told them. It's this big surprise. And you see the child shocked, but they're not offended. (laughs) They're excited. They're shocked, but they're excited. There's other times where people can be shocked and be offended or put off. And I believe Jesus is using the word here. Don't be offended by this. I know that you, you thought Daniel 7.13 was talking about this, this mystical Messiah figure that, you know, no one would know where he would come from. We'll learn about that later in John. Jesus says, I'm him. Don't be offended by this. I'm, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to identify myself for you. But they're, they're clearly shocked. Jesus seems to be exhorting them not to be shocked to offense. And so to back up his claim now, and this is, this is what's interesting. There's, there's a, some subtleties here in what he says. We want to kind of draw those out. But to back up his claim, he's going to go into more detail about his part in the resurrection. And then he's going to, by doing so, he's going to take his connection to the Father, and he's going to carry it on even further. In fact, Jesus continues to double down. This is what's so incredible about this passage. It's like, I don't, I wouldn't say Jesus is up in their face because I think that's got this negative kind of obnoxious tone. But the point is this, is that he is now leaning in to these guys and he is, he is taking this conversation serious and he is going farther than he's gone before in terms of identifying himself in his ministry up to this point. And, and, and he is just leaning in. He's not backing off. And this is what I love uh, about this section. He just continues to do that. And what we're going to see is what he is going to tell them is he's going to give them some additional revelation that even Daniel didn't include in Daniel 12. He's going to give some additional stuff relating to his role in the resurrection. In fact, you've got this large statement, the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So obviously it's an incredible statement. He's identifying himself with Daniel 12, that he's going to be a part of that resurrection. He's going to be the primary agent in that resurrection. But he actually gives some additional information. And so if you have already turned back to John 5, uh, sorry, go back to uh, Daniel 12, and just hold your finger there uh, in John 5. We'll come right back. Because I want to show you uh, just a couple of things that Jesus provides as additional information on top of Daniel 12 here in John chapter 5. So we've already read it. Let's read it again, though. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was, such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. By the way, as a side note, those who say that hell doesn't exist, they have a hard time getting around that verse because there's everlasting contempt, not just an end when somebody dies. There's an everlasting punishment. You see that born out in the lake of fire, uh, as well in Revelation 20. And so, uh, but going, uh, going forward, what's not revealed in Daniel 12 2, but it's revealed here by Jesus Christ is the following. Notice that Daniel 12 2 says that many, you, you see that word many saved and unsaved will be resurrected. Whereas, uh, whereas John 5 28 says what? All. Okay. Jesus is, is talking about all resurrections, that he's going to be the primary agent, including the resurrections found in Daniel 12 too. But what's the many that Daniel is talking about? Well, it's really easy when you look at the context. Who are the many? Well, he's talking about chapter nine. And as we're going to see is that these, the exact timing of these resurrections, 
especially the resurrection of the saved, are going to be given through progressive revelation. As we study the Bible more, we're going to see different timings of resurrections. And we'll bring that out here um, in a second. But notice that he's talking about in Daniel 12 too, specifically the resurrection of unsaved and saved Jewish people at that point in time, following the tribulation period, basically leading into their kingdom. But we'll get into that in a second. The reason, again, that Jesus says all here instead of the many in John 5 is now Jesus is speaking of every man, woman, and child who's died since the very first death, Abel, until the very last death of the millennial kingdom reign. There is going to be death during the millennial kingdom, although it's going to be rare, right? They, there's, there's a passage, I think, in Isaiah 65 that says, um, you know, if, you, if someone lives to 100, you're not going to be like, oh, and they died. And we're like, oh, what a baby. That's tragic. They didn't even live a full life, you know? <laughs> so there's going to be some uniqueness there in the millennial kingdom, but there is going to be death in the millennial kingdom. What he's adding in John 5 is he's not only specifically talking about the time following the tribulation when the many will be raised. He's talking about he's the agent of all resurrection. This is what God the Father has entrusted the Son of Man with. Daniel 12, 1 through 2 also does not tell us who causes, who brings about the resurrection. You can't really find that, although it's assumed that God does that. And, and the Jewish audience of Jesus' day would have assumed that, that it was God, that it was Yahweh that did that. Jesus is telling us it is Yahweh, God the Son. He, he is Yahweh, and he will be the agent, the primary agent, doing that resurrection. Notice, uh, again, they will hear his voice. Go, go back to, to John here really quickly in uh, verse um, 28. Do not marvel at this, he says. Don't be offended by this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And what happens when somebody in the grave hears the voice of Jesus Christ telling them to come forth? They come forth. That's what happens. That's, that's the truth of the resurrection. So in this way, what Jesus is doing for his audience, and he's really given them a great Old Testament instruction here, is he's connecting Daniel 12, 1 and 2, this resurrection at the end of the tribulation with Daniel 7, 13 and 14. What they would not have realized is that the Son of Man from Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is the one who's going to raise them from the dead after the tribulation period. They would not have connected that. Jesus connects it for him. And so what he does effectively says, this is a role of the Messiah. Resurrection is a role of the Messiah. Thus, uh, I am him, basically, is what he's saying. So this would have been new information for Jesus's audience. The third thing I want to point out is that Daniel 12 and John 5 mention two distinct resurrections, right? One for the saved, one for the unsaved. But what we learn as we study the, the scripture further is that this first resurrection of the saved happens at different stages. Now, I'll just tell you, there's other theological persuasions that wouldn't agree with that. They think they all happen at the same time. But let me just present <clears throat> what I believe the scriptures teach as it relates to one of the things that we see in the Old Testament is that Old Testament saints, those who have believed, right? It, because we look all the way back in the Old Testament. I mean, every, and we've, we've got to be sure, and there's so many different rabbit holes I can go off here. I'm going to try to stay on track here. But we've got to understand that people from all time have gotten saved the same way, by grace, through faith. There's a lot of confusion where people think that the Old Testament believers got saved by keeping the law or by doing sacrifices, that's not biblically borne out. Now, there are biblical sacrifices, clearly. There is a Mosaic law, clearly. But those were designed largely to maintain or restore fellowship for a Jew when they sinned, when they broke the law. But in terms of getting saved, being born again, uh, spending eternity with God, they got saved the same way Abraham got saved. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul draws this truth out in Romans chapter 4 in detail. And so you can kind of look at it there. So when I talk about Old Testament saints, I'm talking about people who have put their faith in God, who have put their faith in God's coming Messiah. Okay, all throughout the Old Testament, you've got Jews, you've got Gentiles involved. Rahab, I can think of one. Ruth, I can think of another. These were believing Gentiles. They were saved the same way Abraham was. That's who I'm talking about here. But in the Old Testament, there's multiple places where it's promised to them that they'll participate in the millennial kingdom. They'll be in the millennial kingdom. In fact, Jesus is, is honoring, I think it's in Matthew 8, he's honoring the faith of a, of a Gentile who, who believes that he can heal 
I think it's his son from a distance. And he says this, I have not found so great a faith in Israel. And that's why Gentiles will come from the east and the west. And they'll sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Well, how can they sit down with them if they're not there? Right? And so these Old Testament saints are going to be resurrected just prior to the millennial kingdom so that they can enjoy the kingdom that was promised to their forefathers. Daniel 12, 3 says this, but you go your way till the end for you shall rest speaking. That's a euphemism for death and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. And so that's just a a verse that communicates this idea that they're going to rise in time to enjoy their inheritance or the kingdom promised to uh, their forefathers. Now, when will this happen? We're going to look at this in, in more in a second. We're going to go to Revelation here in a second. I believe it's going to happen at the same time as the resurrection of the tribulation saints that we read in Revelation 20. Just trying to put this in time frame. All right, so that's the Old Testament saints trying to go in order. But uh, the church age saints, we learn in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, that whoever has died in bodily, uh, bodily form, you know, during the church age, that means from the day of Pentecost until the day of the rapture, that's the church age. It may shock you, but Abraham's not a part of the church. Adam wasn't part of the church. David wasn't part of the church. The church started on the day of Pentecost, day of Pentecost to the day of the rapture. That's the church age saints. And they will be resurrected at the rapture of the remaining in a live church. We learn about that in first Thessalonians four, uh, verses 13 through 18, but 16 through 17 says this for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout <clears throat> with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now our church holds a pre then the resurrection of the Old Testament saints, at least by seven years, that it's going to precede the tribulation, not follow the tribulation, which is when we believe the Old Testament saints will be raised. Additionally, we learn in Revelation 20, verse four, which I'll bring up here in a second, that the saints who trusted in Christ, you know, a lot of people say, can people get saved during the tribulation? Yes, they can. In fact, the Bible teaches that there will be people who get saved during the tribulation period. They miss they, they, they weren't saved when the rapture happened. And that could be generations after that. But anyways, they get saved during the tribulation period and they were martyred during the seven year tribulation period. Many of them, they'll be raised following the second coming. This is what Revelation 20 verse four says. Uh, John writes, and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Judgment where as part of Jesus's administrative staff on earth during the millennial kingdom, judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded that's proof that they died. You don't typically, you don't typically live when your head's gone. So um, the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image. That gives us the time frame. This is during the tribulation period and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so there's a resurrection of tribulation saints prior to the kingdom. <clears throat> and although it's not specifically mentioned in scripture, it does seem plausible that the saints who died during the millennial kingdom will also be raised at some point. There's just not a lot of detail on that one. Um, but obviously they would be raised and in resurrection bodies for eternity. We just don't exactly know when that happens. There's not a lot of detail there. So that kind of covers all of the, the different phases of the resurrection of the saved, right? Jesus says, uh, again, trying to tie this back now to John, we're kind of taking a side doctrinal note this morning. But if you go back to John uh, 5, 28 it says for the hours come in which all who are in the grave so this covers the saved part of that all equation what about the unsaved well the unsaved happens at a distinct and different time than any of these other resurrections in fact the scriptures tell us in revelation 20 that all of the unsaved will be raised at one time following the millennial kingdom that's when they're going to appear before the great white throne judgment by the way that judgment doesn't go well for any of them because I believe what he's going to be judging there is based on their righteousness. And we know from the scriptures that no man possesses a righteousness equal to God through their own works. And so they're going to be condemned to the lake of fire because they don't possess righteousness and they rejected God's solution for righteousness, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. So a lot of detail there. If you're kind of like, just get to the bottom, make the main point. All right, here we go. Main point. The resurrections that Jesus' audience understood from the Old Testament, believed would happen, would happen 
are going to happen under the authority and at the word of Jesus Christ, the son of man. That's the main point that Jesus is getting at here. We kind of took a, a short doctrinal uh, treatise to, to kind of visit about those. This is the point of what he's saying. You guys understood there were resurrection, right? When he gets to John 11, Martha's going to say, oh yeah, I believe in the resurrection. And Jesus is like, no, no, I'm the resurrection. You got that? <laughs> I'm life, right? And this is the, the clarification he's to provide for Martha, but they believed in a, res- a future resurrection. Jesus is just clarifying that it's going to be at his authority and at his word that this is going to happen. Let's jump into verse 29 now, because you've got these two resurrections that are described and Jesus uses interesting wording. In fact, I think what he's saying here is actually at face value seems to be confusing, potentially, potentially confusing what he says here. I don't think it needs to be, but I think it's potentially confusing. So we want to kind of address that because he says, those who have done good, they will be raised to resurrection of life. And if you just look at this phrase, which a lot of people do, if you just take this verse and rip it out of context, which a lot of people do, you would see that some people would say, well, good works have got to be necessary for salvation. You got to, you got to be good, you know, at some point. Okay. So let's talk about that with a couple of different points. First, you know, the entire testimony of the book of John is centered on the fact that eternal life is a free gift to those who simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. Nothing to do with good works in terms of obtaining eternal life. In fact, when you think about eternal life, right off the bat, it seems that we have a contradiction here. Wait a minute. If John is, is writing this to convince people to trust in Christ alone, and then he says, well, no, you got to be good too. You see how there's like an inherent contradiction if that's actually what John is trying to do here or what Jesus is saying here in John 5. But we know from, from the rest of the scriptures, and we'll kind of build this out a little bit, salvation is only concerned about with one work. And it's not yours. Salvation is concerned about one person. And it's not you. It's about the God man who died for your sins and rose again. That's the work that salvation is based upon. That's the interest. So we, we have to assume that, that John in recording things wouldn't record knowing contradictions in his book. That that wasn't his intention here to communicate what Jesus has said. So one of the things that's really interesting about this, and I hate to get geeky greaky here, but I... But it does kind of help a little bit. This phrase for, for both those who have done good and those who have done evil is what's called a substantival participle. It's a participle with a definite article, okay? What that effectively does is it knocks the participle to the realm of a noun side of the equation rather than a verbal side. A participle could be more of a noun or more of a verb reflecting action. But when you've got it articulated, it bounces it to the noun side of the equation. Specifically, substantival participles are, are adjectival, okay? In other words, they function as an adjective. Now, I'm sorry if you don't like English. I mean, if you don't, I mean, if you don't like English, this is probably mind-splitting for you. But let me just say this. An adjective describes a noun. It's a descriptor word of a noun. I, I heard a guy the other day, well, I probably shouldn't tell. It's a political thing. Anyways, um, but I'll just, now that I do that, I do that all the time. And I'm like, I don't want to leave you hanging. But he just said that my, my pronouns are he, him. And he says, and my uh, preferred adjectives are tall, dark, and handsome or something, something like that. But anyways, this is, this is an adjective, right? This is describing a person. This is a good translation. Those who have done good or one who has done good, a doer of good, or you could even say a good person a good person. And you're like, man, that still maybe doesn't help me too much. But I, got, I want you to understand that the emphasis here in this phrase is not on the activity of somebody. It's the quality of a person. Okay. Now that still may not help us because we know the Bible says that there's none good. So does that mean that the resurrection of life is going to be empty? <laughs> no one's going to get resurrected at that one because the Bible does say there's none good. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When you talk about biblical goodness, what's so beautiful about the gospel, because a person does need to be good to go to heaven. Make no mistake. You got to be good. And in that sense, many people understand the bottom line, right? Because that's exactly what religion teaches. You got to be good to go to heaven. But there was a book written years ago that asked a great question. How good is good enough? Right? That's where we draw the line. That's where we make a distinction from what most religion teaches you because religion teaches you just try, just try hard, do a bunch of good works. And then, you know, hopefully at the end, you can be good enough. And what the Bible teaches is stop working and trust in the one who was good 
and trust in the value of what he did for you and accomplished for you. And when you do that, God credits righteousness. He makes you good enough to enter heaven. And so the only goodness that God is, will accept is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And oh, by the way, that's what the good news of the universe provides. It's exactly what God provides through the finished work of Christ. Romans 3, 21 through 22. But, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. You see, righteousness according to the law can never get you to a level that's acceptable to God. It has to be apart from the law. This is what religion misses every single time because they just double down on the law. Try a little bit harder. Quit sinning so much. Start doing more righteous things. Start giving more money to the church. That's always a favorite one of religion. Open your wallet. Maybe I can help you get to heaven. <laughs> I mean, we, we give refunds here sometimes, you know? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous to put money in between somebody and heaven because righteousness doesn't come from the law. Righteousness doesn't come from trying to be better and hoping that the scales will turn in your favor. In fact, righteousness comes the day that you realize that is a failed proposition and I'll never pursue that again. I'm gonna trust in the one who died for me and if I'm not good enough by trusting in him, I didn't have a shot to begin with. So he's my only hope. That's it. If Jesus is going down, well, I'm going, I've already been down. I ain't going anywhere anyways, right? And that's the point because Apart from the law, it's revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, meaning that God said this is how he's going to make a person righteous. All through the Old Testament. He didn't shift gears in the Old Testament. Go, oh, this law thing isn't working very well. Let me me try some, you know, plan B. Jesus was always his plan A. God always knew that he was going to declare and make people righteous on the basis of his dearly beloved son and what he would do. It's testified, it's witnessed in the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, there is no difference. Again, you see the one response required in the Bible is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You trust that he died for you in your place. God credits his righteousness to you. Sounds like a pretty good deal. In fact, it's completely free to you. Cost Jesus everything, but he's offering it free to you. Just like every other gift you've ever received in your lifetime, somebody else paid the the price in full. And the same is true about salvation. Jesus paid it in full so that he might offer it to you as a free gift. Second Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The one who has done good, the, the good person. How do you become a good person? You trust in Jesus Christ and God credits his righteousness to your account. You become the righteousness of God in him when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What about this second group? Those who have done evil will be raised to the resurrection of condemnation. And again, this phrase alone seems to indicate if yanked out of context that if you live an evil life, it's gonna result in condemnation. You know, people that rip this out of context, typically when they talk about evil people, who are they talking about? The murderers, the rapists, the, the pedophiles, the, did it, did they ever throw in there the gossips? Uh, the people that lose their temper when they're driving on the road? The people that have envious thoughts uh, of coworkers and neighbors? The people who wish, you know, their husband and wife were someone else's husband and wife? Or, I mean, I mean, it's never these internal sins as if those aren't evil. It's always like the dirty dozen, you know? That's what people, that's what people think of when you're evil. Now, one of the things that's interesting is when we look at the, the work of Christ, he died for sinners. No amount of evil or sin can outdistance a person from the finality and completeness of the death that Christ died. Now, I don't care who you are in this room. You should be thankful for this truth. You are no better than anybody else that's ever lived on planet earth. I don't even care if you compared yourself to Hitler. In God's eyes, you are just as deserving of hell as Adolf Hitler is. Those are things that are hard to understand. Those are things that don't make sense. Well, I I would never kill six million Jews. Yeah, you wouldn't. But the second you lied when you were three years old, you just joined the club of evil in the sight of God. We don't understand the complete offense of sin to a holy God. We rank it. We rank it. We take the judgment gavel out of the hand of the Lord Jesus. We put it in ours. 
least I'm not as bad as them. At least I'm not a Democrat. At least I didn't vote for this guy. At least I didn't. I mean, give me a break. We don't have an understanding of sin. And thus, oftentimes, we don't have a full appreciation of what the Savior actually did. And what the Savior actually accomplished for you. And you know what? Praise God. He's not holding you accountable for not valuing him enough. Because if you've trusted in him, you're saved. And you may not learn everything we need to learn on this earth. You may not appreciate or value what he did enough for you on this earth, but he still loves you. And he still solved a problem that even if you didn't even have an idea of how bad it was, he did. So we're not talking about that there's some evil that you can commit out way out here that somehow his death didn't cover. Same phrase, substantival, participle, those who have done. So we're talking about one who has done evil, a doer of evil, or better said, an evil person. By the way, God's solution for sin is exactly that. It's a solution. It's the solution. It's the exact solution that needed to be provided for the problem that we had. And so what ends up happening with these people is that all men are evil according to God's standard. That's all of us in this room. That's all of anyone you've ever met. But the thing that nails the coffin door shut on anybody in this lifetime, and this is what's so tragic, it's when they die having never trusted in Jesus Christ. They have never accepted. They've always rejected God's solution for some reason or another. You know, there are many people who are going to spend eternity in hell and they have a positive volition to Jesus Christ. They just think they got to do all these other works along with it. And they're going to spend eternity in hell. That's tragic. Because when you trust in a solution, you don't come up with extra caveats to protect yourself. That's not trusting. You're not trusting in a solution when you do that. We're talking about trusting in Jesus Christ alone. There are people who have rejected the finished work can condemn somebody to the lake of fire, which is final separation from God for eternity. It's the only thing. Unbelief. We looked at that in John chapter three. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that was God's ultimate solution to sin's problem. Paid our sin debt, provided righteousness that we needed. Then when he talks about the resurrection, those who have done evil, it's those who have never trusted in Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate evil. It's the one sin that can, can send you to hell. You know, I've asked that to people. What's the one sin that can send you to hell? And they're like, uh, homosexuality or no, it's not. Homosexuals can go to heaven if they've trusted in Christ. That may be shocking to our ears, but why would it be? Can loose heterosexuals go to heaven when they trust Christ? Well, yeah, of course they can. So sexual perversion is, is a sin that Christ died for. But the one sin that will send somebody to hell, and this is what's tragic, nobody has to go to hell. God's provided the solution. The one sin that'll send them there is rejection of his solution. That's exactly what we read in John chapter three. Now, when we get to verse 30, <clears throat> it's a little bit transitional. It's gonna close our section, verse 19 to 30, but it's also gonna kind of springboard us into the rest of the chapter, which Jesus is gonna provide testimonies from others based on his identity. He's been giving a personal testimony of his identity. Now he's gonna basically call four other witnesses to the witness stand as we get into that next week. Verse 30, he's gonna make this statement again, and I kind of said this back in verse 19, but it's just an interesting statement. I can do nothing of myself. That's, that should not hit your ears as normal. That should be a shocking statement that he's making here. And so in verse 30, he says this, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the father who sent me. This word can means able. It's, it's having power by virtue of your own ability and resources. And, and we're going to kind of just keep working through these words. Nothing means he, he can do not even one thing, not to the least of himself. And that's actually that next phrase of myself, because what Jesus is saying is that he's not saying that he can't do anything. That's not what he's saying. If you look closely, what he's saying is that he cannot from his own inherent abilities and resources do something. Why is that? Because he's determined to live life on earth. This is what, this is the beauty of the incarnation, the, the incredible thing about the incarnation. He's determined to live life on earth, even though he's God in flesh, living life on earth, dependent upon the Father's resources. <laughs> that is absolutely mind blowing, should be. 
as we think about the Lord Jesus. In fact, he stated that either uh, earlier in 519. He doesn't have the ability or capability to do something in and out of his resources. He set it up that way. So even though he possessed eternal uh, unlimited resources, even though he is and always would be God in the flesh, he had limited the voluntary use of his own attributes in deference to God the Father, relying upon his resources. And when God the Father, to use an illustration we use, when God the Father said jump, Jesus jumped. And when God the Father said this, Jesus did that. That's how he lived his life, one moment at a time. And this, by definition, is walking by faith. He was depending on the Father and his own resources. By the way, exact same way we're designed to live the Christian life, right? Moment by moment, by faith, relying on whose resources? Ours or someone else's? That's exactly right, someone else's. The Lord Jesus, his resources, exactly how we are designed to live. Now, let me kind of move through this quickly because one of the things that Jesus is gonna say here is he's gonna say, as I hear, I judge. And notice that direct connection. As I hear, right now in this moment, God speaks to me, I respond, and when he speaks to me, I judge. It's this present tense idea that he's got ear to mouth, mouth of God the Father to his ear, and then he executes. It's kind of what he's communicating. There's this direct line. And this is why he says that his judgment is righteous, because whose judgment ultimately is he passing on when he's evaluating things? It's God the Father. This is why he says his judgment's righteous. Again, it's this direct connection between him and God. And this means that his evaluation of healing this man on the Sabbath is exactly God the Father's evaluation. This is what his audience didn't understand. They evaluated that what he did was wrong because he was out of sync with with what they believed, basically. Now, this is what's so amazing in the way Jesus says this. This kind of comes back to the statement that he can of himself do nothing. Why is he confident that his judgment is righteous? Notice what he says there. He uses the word because, because I don't seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. He's not striving after his own desires, but what he's doing is he's seeking to enforce God the Father's judgment here. He's, he's got no other motive, no other agenda for his life and ministry. And so this is why he's telling you, my judgment can be trusted. I'm not doing this for myself. I'm not trying to build myself up in front of everybody. I am telling you who I am, but let me tell you why you can trust me. I'm just giving you the judgment of God the Father. I'm just passing that along to you. And that's why it's righteous in this sense. Now notice the very last phrase, because this really springboards us into next week. It's the will of the Father who sent me. And because the Father has sent Jesus, Jesus is now going to bring up four witnesses, four separate witnesses to the witness stand testifying further of who he is and why he's got the ability not only to judge, but to raise the dead. And so let's close there with a word of prayer. And we'll pick up there next week. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I just thank you for the Lord Jesus and all that he means to us. And I pray that, that even just studying this section that we just become, have become more enamored with him, just appreciated him further in our thinking for all that he is and everything that he is. And we thank you again in Jesus' name, amen.